0: Greetings, dear listeners. This week, our good friend, Berlin-based journalist and New York Times Magazine contributing writer Elizabeth Zorofsky joins us to discuss how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has changed Europe. What explains the righteous fury that is transforming the continent? And for paying members only, we go on to discuss whether Europe has a preference for white and specifically non-Muslim refugees and if that makes the whole place racist. To become a paying member and get access to these special features and episodes, please go to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and join us. On to the episode.
1: Okay, but do we, let's just maybe be, because I, I actually don't know what we want to talk about. I presume we want to talk about elizabeth's time in europe and just learn about and also her, her sense of how europe is changing
0: i think that's what i want to talk about okay. i want to talk about that before you got here uh elizabeth and i were saying that i mean you were on the uh, the text exchange when i said i want to talk about feelings and i i, I kind of want to talk about feelings
2: it was dead serious yeah. good
1: that sounds amazing actually yeah. what kind of feelings
0: well i mean so it was uh you know when we're not going to talk about ukraine but like it was the night that the ukraine uh invasion started you were out of town and we had our uh reading group and elizabeth was the invited guest because she's passing through town uh she hadn't interloper. done the reading interloper yeah. who hadn't done the reading uh, we were doing a, a book group about carl schmidt uh, as i think i mentioned on previous episodes just as the uh the invasion kicked off and then the next morning I forget. We'll try and dig it up. Did you? Was it on Twitter? Or was it? it was on Twitter. It was on Twitter. What, yeah. did, what exactly did you say? I don't remember the tweet.
2: Um, Let's see. Because we were here, and then I think we left like around 10 p.m., which, yeah. would, which would have been about 4 a.m. Moscow time. Yep. And one of the other people who was at the group said that Putin was giving a speech, and we said, oh, it's 4 a.m. there. No, he's not. But it turned out that he was. Yep. And that was the start of the bombing campaign. And then I woke up the next morning, and the invasion had fully begun and i think i said like a uh, strong stefan zweig uh, vibes this morning or something like
0: because that. everything had changed Do you know who stefan zweig is shoddy
1: no yeah he's probably a german guy
2: austrian but oh yeah. like, like hitler like him. oh, oh well, not, jewish. he was jewish it's like a
0: jewish hitler <laughs> Uh, no, not exactly. In fact, the opposite. Uh, uh, the famous book is what? The, the World is, of
2: Yesterday. The World of Yesterday. Yes.
0: And it's... it's. Uh, he went and... Uh, he left. He left, he left he Vienna.
2: And, and he grew... This is funny because I don't have like a... I actually like I haven't reviewed my Stefan Zweig don't like, worry history about in a it. long we, time. We, but he, we just <laughs> completely freelance all the time on our facts on this podcast. He, yeah. So don't quote me on this. But he, um, he grew up in like a... In essentially a liberal Vienna. It was yeah. a Vienna under the... Because it would have been born in the you know late nineteenth century, I guess.
1: Oh, so the, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Yeah, exactly. One of my favorite empires, as it. One so of the happens.
0: best empires. A lot of people, many <laughs> people, getting
2: are a lot of play recently. Yeah. But the point being that it was relatively, uh, there was a certain liberalism, at least in certain, at least in certain parts of it, and, and Vienna as a city. Um, at least, yes. So he was a writer in in a sort of liberal Vienna, and I think his father was a you know businessman and they had a decent amount of money and he, he became a writer. And then oh man, if I had known I would have reviewed ahead yeah. of him. But he did he fled eventually. He ended up in um
0: after Schittler came to power.
2: Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and he fled to Argentina Argentina
0: that's right where he committed suicide he committed at the suicide Varian.
2: with his wife that's right they did it together, I believe I
0: think that's right too, uh, but he committed suicide, basically, and the book is 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 sort of a lamentation of the the world that it disappeared
2: and so uh, he describes in great detail this Vienna of his childhood as you know yes, and not, yeah, so not yeah. that everything was perfect, but he has this very sort of granular detailed memory of of growing up there, and then just I, I think he wrote the book did he write it before? He must have written it after he left. I, I, I,
0: I honestly don't know either, but I think that's right. He was already exiled in, in Argentina. And what, I when he was why there.
1: did he commit suicide? Because he was just so sad about leaving his home country?
0: Now, see, this is this is where I really don't know. I yeah. think that's the myth behind it that that in fact, mm. you know, uh, just sort of heartbroken over yeah. over the Europe that no longer existed uh, and his
2: life that no longer existed, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. it was very particularly constructed within this certain, you know, certain place, certain city, certain civilization, and that was that was all gone. I so mean, maybe he was aggressive <laughs> and just
0: yeah. you know, did okay, it well, yeah. Okay, well,
1: so help me out. So to <laughs> yeah. tie in to the current moment,
2: well, that when when I woke up on mm, Thursday morning, it was very clear to me that, um, that the world of yesterday was the world of yesterday.
1: Okay. Yeah.
2: I mean, I, and I really felt that very strongly. Um,
1: can you say more about that? Well, it also reminds me of the great quote from Vladimir Lenin.
0: We're back to this,
1: which I mentioned <laughs> in a previous episode. So I won't, I won't bore people with it.
2: well, you know, I don't know. I don't wanna like make any assumptions about, you know, I my you know, I live in Berlin, of course, and I still feel, you know, I still feel in some ways that my home is here and I'm American and that sort of thing. But um but being but but living in Berlin for the last couple of years, you have a very, you know, this this is like a very, very, very consequential moment. I mean, you know, Kiev the distance between Kiev and Berlin is like distance from here to Chicago or so. Hmm. Um and there is a um there is a deep sort of visceral German uh, memory of 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 wartime, of being at war, even among people who weren't alive at that time. It's something that has been passed down, and that is absolutely that is absolutely certain. And you know, when I, we saw those images, I think even on a Thursday morning, of you know Russian warplanes dropping bombs and that kind of thing, and it was a you know large. Aggressive, aggressive imperial nation invading a weaker neighbor for for no reason and just you but, know I think there were just these flashbacks. But
0: but 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 uh you know the it's interesting you say that uh, that the war memory and I mean are you talking to your German
2: friends yes. much about it? Yes, and they are all prepared for the absolute worst. Well, I, Which I, would I, be
1: I,
0: what? hold on, I, I want to talk about <laughs> that. But just before we get into the, what they're saying, I, I'm I'm struck by you saying that they it's it's the war memories that are triggering it because yes. I would have thought uh and i would i perhaps assumed wrongly when you were saying about the world of yesterday i mean I, I believe i i i teased you on twitter afterwards was that was that in fact it's it's the european dream of you know kantian perpetual peace that's dead this idea that you know a rationally ordered sort of liberal society uh to me that's been how i've been experiencing this and and so i mean as people, I guess, who listen to this podcast know to a certain extent, I've always thought that that's kind of a sham. So so that part of it hasn't been that feeling of yeah. loss for me. And I was wondering if that's what it was. Yeah, but, no, no, so, no, no. That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So I'm just sort of making a parallel to this kind of, you know, these images that symbolize, you know, the end of one thing, the beginning of, of the next thing. But mm. but yes, mm. no, no, no. I think it is it is the, yeah, the death of a certain idea of of how Europe was was supposed to be from, <laughs> mm. you know, Yeah, since 1945 until until forever. But
0: so you're talking to your German friends. I mean, tell me tell me, like, what's what's the mood that you can discern? I guess right now, you know, at a distance, you're you're flying back to Berlin. Right. Yeah. So I've been here
2: for about two weeks. So I haven't Yeah. I sort of missed the (laughs) as far as I understand, I'm going to be returning to an entirely different, entirely different city. Um, But I think people are sad. I think they're scared i think that they feel certain that there's going to be you know something's going to happen and and nato's going to get pulled in or germany's going to get pulled in or this is going to spread you know spread somehow Hmm. um i um i think um and and this you know the nuclear element obviously adds like a really just different dimension like as far as i understand people are buying buying iodine tablets. Are they? Yeah. In Germany,
0: really? Yeah, wow. I think so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's different for us. Sorry, what does what, what that uh, Radiation what? poisoning. You take iodine t- tablets oh. to sort of survive that. If you've been exposed. Okay, yeah. I see. No, so I mean, that is something that I think, you know, I, I, I mentioned the podcast yesterday, Sharia recorded, but I mean, I'm getting a lot of sort of, you know, especially from sort of younger friends and colleagues who are saying like, you know, uh, how bad is it? Are we going to go to nuclear war? Is this happening? You know, like I'm getting a fair bit of those uh, in, the, in the last two days, I think. Um, And, uh, but I think it it is important to remember that, I mean, I think for Europeans, it's much scarier because it's right there. It is. It it can spill out in ways that for us, we're still, we still have an ocean.
2: And exactly. And so I think that there's something about that. There's this sort of geographic, like territorial element to it, right? Like as an American, you know, I just, I have this kind of like feeling of security having been born in the 80s, like deeply ingrained in me. And even, you know, even our parents, because we have this sort of territorial protection essentially mm. and they're you know they're in the middle of everything and they're you know that, that they don't they don't have that same feeling so part of that is real and then part of that is just you know um that there is this um there is this german <laughs> historical sense of catastrophism that mm. everything can just disintegrate you know at any time and and, and i just don't have that mm. um and germans do but i you know i can see i can see yeah <laughs> but can the, see that I was gonna
1: say that the memory of war, though, can cut in two different ways, as far as I can tell, that on one hand, it can lead Germans and Europeans to be so afraid of confrontation or of a kind of spiral of war that they make concessions they shouldn't make to the Russians. And I think before Russia invaded Ukraine, that was the perception of how Germans Saw their relationship with the Russians And I I was reading this Profile of the former foreign minister Gerhard Schroeder Mm. That just two weeks ago There was a profile on him That basically about all of his Russia ties and how he thinks That he's on the right side of history That he's reflecting What Germans deep down feel Which is they will pursue peace At any price Peace with Russia is so important to them That they'll continue doing what they've done, which is the kind of de- energy dependence and avoiding being confrontation at all with, with Russia. Obviously, that's changed completely just in the last two weeks. But up until now, I think there was a sense that Germans were so afraid of repeating the past that they were willing to give more than they should give to the Russians. Now we see something different, that because they remember war, And because they see the seriousness of what Russia is doing, that perhaps now they're willing to be more aggressive and more confrontational because they feel like now is the time to stand for their idea of Europe. So I'm curious, like if those are two different directions that Germans and Europeans are capable of going in. I mean, does that make sense? It
2: does make sense. But I think that's precisely, you know, indicative of the change that happened. I think that, you know, as soon as that, I think that 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 very well described that sort of, you know, we will avoid war at any cost, the German and even the European position up until, until Thursday. And now I just, I think it's, it's more of a matter. They just feel like they don't, they don't have any, they don't have any choice, essentially.
1: They could capitulate though. I mean, there was an alternate history where the Germans could have said, um, no, we're not going to divest from our energy relationship Mm -hmm. with the Russians that we will be careful about sending or supporting sending anti-tank weaponry. We don't want to go too far on sanctions because that could provoke the Russians to escalate. I mean, that's true. So, I mean, the Germans have, I think, pleasantly surprised us. And I think a lot of us have reacted by saying, wow, we did not. Necessarily see this day coming where the Germans would be as tough as they have been.
2: That's true. Um, I guess this is the point where it becomes. It's like a. <laughs> I'm not a political scientist, but it's like a regime. Neither it's am I. Like only a,
0: shoddy. There's only one
2: political scientist <laughs> in the room. True. I don't know I, what I'm the. I'm a charlatan. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm like a literature major, but there's there's probably some term for like it's like a regime. It's like a regime level. Like it's like democracy against autocracy. Oh, that's right. okay. And exactly. I think, and I think that you know, for as much as Germany has been, you know, peace-loving and trying to avoid conflict and that sort of thing, they are absolutely, they are absolutely committed to democracy. And and in many ways, you know, uh, German democracy has managed to stand in the last uh, five to ten years in ways that American democracy hasn't, and French it has resisted some of the tensions and pressures that. Temptations. The U.S., France, the U.K., other Western democracies have, hmm. have not. So Germany has remained fairly strong. And now I think I think this becomes like regime. But uh, regime so, level so they
1: see Russia's threat as something that affects their own domestic politics. Like what what is the connection there? Because I mean, it's still it's still something that's happening outside, um, and they have been indulgent of autocratic leaders in different contexts before. I mean, it's not as if Germany is known for being an aggressive democracy promoter and standing up for democratic ideals abroad.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's true. I guess it's just, um, you know, I guess my answer, this is just sort of something, this is what I've, yeah, I've been yeah, thinking yeah. about. Do but I, I think, you know... Uh, for our generation, at least, like especially in the last five years, you know, that there's been a lot of sort of questioning about democracy and is it fulfilling what we expected it to fulfill? And is it, you know, um, are there deep-seated problems with democracy that we, can, that we can overcome? And are we really, you know, are we really committed to democracy in the way that our, you know, our grandparents who were alive during the 40s were? And I think there's been a lot of questioning about that. And now I think, um, I think we have, I mean, I think we have our answer Right. I think that for me, the sort of um, the sort of (laughs) um, like the the epiphany of this moment is that in a system which is a system like if you don't sort of fight for an open society, for freedom of information, freedom of the press, limited, you know, like, not allowing the concentration of power in very, you know, among very, very small circle of people, uh, power, money, that sort of thing, that, that you sort of necessarily end up back at the same place, which Mm. is Putin invading Ukraine, which was Hitler invading Poland, which was, you know, Hmm. German aggression in the early, you know, in 1914, or whatever. So I, 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 I just think that that's that there that there is like a values. I know you don't believe in values to me. But like, <laughs> I think true. there is a values level fight going on here that Germany is, you know, hmm. is committed to.
0: So I, I floated this in yesterday's episode. Um, I'll float it again and see if it resonates. Um, the the thing that's that's jumped out at me, as Shadi said, like we didn't expect this the, of the Germans, certainly not of the Germans. I, haven't, I didn't expect it of the Europeans as a whole. Uh, the kind of um, anger, I think, because it's. It's not just shock and loss, but it seems to be just like a white hot anger that moved them to action in a way. I mean, you know, I can imagine, you know, all sorts of deploring of stuff. I mean, Europeans have been great about deploring and wringing their hands. There's that great Twitter account, Is EU Concerned? Which, <laughs> which actually I haven't checked in. I think maybe he's shut up at this point because, well, anyway. <laughs> He was going for the uh, first few days of the war when the Europeans would pipe up with something he'd be like retweeting "Is he you concerned very gravely you know and so, yeah. so it 's a great twitter account but the, but the you know on Sunday specifically when you know the sanctions were announced and and you know the changes on defense spending and the rest of it, there seemed to be something else behind it, which is a kind of anger and and you know what what is really what really struck me about it um, just sort of thinking through it was really how the war was kicked off, you know I mean in the middle of a UN security council meeting chaired by Russia like he invades like it's it's like it's like wiping your ass with the UN charter and i can't imagine there's there's anything you know dearer to sort of like the german psyche <laughs> than than the very institutions that 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 all of it is based on yeah. and i mean in in a way i don't know if they they planned it that much but so much of it has was almost almost scripted to be maximally provocative almost scripted yeah. to be everything you stand for is shit exactly and so so exactly. so the anger is that it's not i mean that's my my theory my working theory right now i haven't actually uh you know apart from my colleagues or Europeans i haven't actually been talking to apart from my parents for that but it seems to me that there's a there's a kind of Again, uh, it's like a it's a liberal holy war that's happening right now. Which I think is-
2: that's true. And, you know, the thing is, the other thing is that we like, well, we still do live in democracies and there still is public pressure. And like our leaders ostensibly still have to respond to that. And like, at least in Germany, people still believe in that. And there has been for as sort of anti military, anti anything militaristic, anti anything sort of related to war, army spending, that sort of thing, the German public has been in the past. My impression is that now that there is really mm, pressure coming—I know f- for sure—from the media mm. uh, on the German political establishment to like take this seriously and you know freaking send arms to Ukraine. It was Ukraine. striking, right? It was and it was you know and 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 they're still responding to. I mean, to it was striking. Pressure.
0: It was right up right up uh, until they made the big pivot, right? And they had the. Uh, both the former defense minister and I think the former head of the army saying yeah, right. the cupboards are bare. and yeah. <laughs> we've we've yeah. completely picked them dry. I don't know if you yeah. saw that shot. It was like <laughs> no. two days before. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, they had they had uh, uh, two two high ranking former German officials basically. One say, one
2: was the head of the army and one was the former defense minister
0: saying we fucked up. Like we have been deprioritizing this for too long. Uh, we, if we wanted to help Ukraine right now, we couldn't. That was the you know oh, really okay. I mean, that was the the level of of the mea culpa. I, that must have reverberated through society, yes. right?
2: Yes, 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 yes. And I mean, it's just it's just not that far away. Yeah. Like I live in Berlin. We're practically at the Polish border. You know, not that far. You're not yeah. far, that far from the Ukraine. It's just close by. I mean, people are scared, and mm-hmm. they want to be able to defend themselves. And Germany has not been in a position to do that. And I think it's just like.
1: It feels like it's exi- coming home to roost. it feels existential, I'm sure yep. because it- I'll say it it feels in a in a way existential to me living in america i I feel like obviously it's not existential in a territorial sense, mm. but it does seem that a lot more is at stake today than perhaps at any point in my adult life and maybe that's slightly overstating, but actually i think it's i think it's possible because The things that I've cared about the most in the past are extremely important to me. And I think they're also extremely important to the world, but maybe in a way that's not as obvious to like ordinary people like the Arab Spring, Middle East and so forth. This is something that I think is much more obviously important to ordinary Americans. They can feel that this matters because Russia can potentially threaten us in a way that other Regional powers can't, and we have to basically defeat Putin. Like when when push comes to shove, that's what this is about. We cannot coexist in a world where Putin is acting in the way he's been acting in Ukraine. So there is no there is no ultimate compromise. As Demir, maybe I'm misstating your argument, Demir. No, no, no But I don't, it, I don't think you are. Yeah, I mean, at at some level, there is an Eric air, two irreconcilable worldviews and ways of approaching the world between the us and russia and either putin has to be he doesn't he doesn't necessarily have to be pushed out of power although that's obviously our preference but he does have to be cut down to size and in some decisive manner and we can't coexist with a putin that is acting this way
0: so let me just ask both of you because i i I think i i have something to maybe pick at here because you know the reason i i I was saying i want to talk to you about this and you know He's joking, we're going to talk about feelings. As I said, I was was sort of, you know, uh, joking about this Stefan Zweig, and I I didn't share that element of it. But since then, it's actually dawned on me. Uh, And actually, you know, ever since we talked last, that that feeling has sort of overcome me, too. But it's different somehow, and it's something to do with what Shadi was saying, but slightly different, too. And so throw it out to both of you this you know elizabeth you were saying i think both of you are sort of on the same page like you've you've sort of ideologized it in the sense of values you know democracy versus autocracy maybe uh made a uh sort of like an intellectual line between you know if you allow autocratic stuff to happen it grows into this cancer metastasizes and what Shadi was saying is, is right. Like, I mean, the last thing I wrote for wisdom of crowds is basically about this irreconcilability and one could make a case that that irreconcilability is rooted in authoritarianism and set of values. And that's what it is. But that's not what's rattled me so much about this. Um, what's rattled me about it is, uh, is something like wider maybe. And, and I, you know, it's probably just how I process things. So it just ends up like refracting that way through me. Um, I'll, I'll, I'm, you know, I don't know if he's put it in an essay yet. He said it verbally. I'll, I'll give him a shout out for it. Like Ben Judah, when we were talking uh, the other day, said something along the lines like, "This is a reverse 1989." Basically, it feels like everything that was achieved there hmm. um, is being rolled back right now. Hmm. Now, again, Ben is, I think, closer to your guy's vision of it. But for me, what feels visceral about it is that there's like a, a really a set of changes. I think not just that. It it's rattling the, the sort of uh, everyday assumptions we have about the world. But that just, um, there's just been a rupture of some sort. And I, I, I can't see beyond it. And that's maybe what, what's most sort of rattling about it. Can I, I say like,
1: something to piss you off a little bit? Yeah, of course. So I don't think this would have happened.
0: If John McCain was around. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that may be true, actually. But that's not what I had oh in mind that this wouldn't have happened if Russia was a democracy. So it is inherent it that's at the that's at the core of this. So we can kind of talk about great powers, geopolitics whatever. The fact of the matter is that authoritarian leaders act irrationally, more irrationally than their democratically elected counterparts. I know I, I just you wrote, wrote that, a piece
2: yeah.
1: kind of problematizing the whole notion of irrationality. Mm -hmm. So I'm going against my own argument. But I think that maybe irrationality isn't the right word, but recklessness. Because I think that Putin is being rational in the sense that he has a goal in mind, which is an idea of a greater Russia that has domination in its sphere of influence. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to make Russia great again in the way that he sees fit. And that requires being reckless. I don't think democratic leaders act that way because they are accountable. Like, can you imagine, like, if, like, I don't know, if Biden pulled something comparable to this? We
0: but, recklessly but, went to Iraq, for Christ's sake. But, Christ they, sakes.
2: but, 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 but they also don't the, have the concentrated power wealth you know circle of people around them to be able to do that i mean but, i understand that our system is not like functioning at like it's you know no, no, guys, maximum like you know but guys level but, but
0: remember the mass delusion of a democracy that we went into iraq under false pretenses and a false mis- and, a, and a misunderstanding of the things on the ground i mean i don't, think, don't think it's
1: comparable no, to no, me no, no, I, I, you,
0: morally it's perhaps not comparable and i'll whatever you know i'll grant you all of that It was still How like you a sham u.n process it was it was it was it was a uh, like it was mass delusion that actually overcame our system. That's all. I mean, and I, I, you know, it's the recklessness part. Let me let me just put it to you in a different way, Shadi. How how does what you just said uh, play out? If um, uh, you know, I gave my analysis, and you know, before we started recording, I was I was reading the latest government analysis of how the war might go, and the analysis still hinges on the idea that the Ukrainians won't give up and will fight for perhaps a decade if not more. Was the the most recent government thing? What if that analysis proves wrong? Uh, Putin wraps this up in uh, in a month um, and conquers all of Ukraine. And uh, China comes to his rescue and we have that kind of world. Uh, Would that prove to be reckless in that sense? No, I mean, it's it's violent, killed a lot of people. We've been pretty violent, and killed a lot of people under false pretenses and bad, bad uh, intelligence about like that led us to a certain thing.
1: Look, recklessness can work. So I'm. I think it's unlikely that there will be a positive, that kind of neat, positive outcome for Russia. But let's say it happens. Recklessness sometimes works. It's high risk, high reward. But it's the kind of thing that um, democratically elected leaders have to be very careful about, because if there's a big chance of failing and it's like a long shot Hail Mary sort of thing, that's something that voters will punish you for.
0: Bush got reelected. After okay, but in the country, it failed catastrophically for him, and he got re-elected. Okay, I, no, no, I, I, I mean, just talk to me about the democracy thing. But there was I, I think,
2: ostensibly public support yeah, for that, right? There was. Whereas well, in re-elected. Russia, I mean, we don't, I guess, who knows, we don't know if there's public support or not, or like how the numbers sort of shake out, but it just doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter if there's public but, support.
0: But again, you know, look, I, we can argue about the, again, what legitimacy means and what's, what the moral sort of weight of legitimacy but Shadi made a case that 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 autocrats act recklessly and get themselves into situations, and they do so because they their recklessness is not is there's no check on their recklessness. I don't think
1: the Iraq War itself was reckless. I think it was dumb. That I think that.
0: Hmm. What's the? I what's mean the that
1: that to me is a distinction. I look. Uh,
2: but this is like an instance of like, it's power hunger, right? I mean, it's sort of a different like he's got imperial design. Yeah, that we didn't want to conquer Iraq. Like, I don't care what anyone I mean, on the
1: left says about it. We did not want to. It was to not
2: meant to like. Take their oil. People call it imperial. Okay, I get that. But it was not like, okay, this is going to be part of like, you know, greater. America. In the Middle <laughs> 51st East. state. Baghdad capital. <laughs> so the, you know, the motivations, I I, to, I totally take your point And I think that that's, you know, I think that that's really fair. But this, I still, I still, that this is still somehow, you know, not only that this is you know this is a sort of very personalized imperial ambition that i do think has to do with the fact that like you know putin is getting old and is thinking about the legacy that he's going to leave behind for his great nation right but it's also it's not going to like even let's say they wrapped up whatever that would mean like the conflict in a month and they you know divided up ukraine and they're occupying it in four different territories or whatever it mean i mean does it end there? How do you occupy no, whatever forty
1: million people? Presumably, eighty percent of them you who don't, don't like Russia. You
0: don't. You know how Serbia did it in Kosovo. They expelled them all. Like that's that's the other part of this. How
1: does that work in this context? It's a lot of people. Half I mean, a million people of, have
0: left Ukraine yeah. already.
1: Yeah, sure, but if a country of forty four million people
0: could easily end up in Europe. I mean, that's one of the nightmare scenarios oh. of this. And I do want to talk about immigration and white people coming to Europe. Oh that's, yeah, that's on my oh. list of things to discuss with Shadi. <laughs> Can't wait. Uh, but but uh, but yeah, look, huh? I mean, that, I mean, I was making this case before as people were saying there's no way this would happen. You know, uh, especially it was it was uh, uh, Leonard who's in Berlin. he's Yeah. The, Bloomberg columnist and a Russian guy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's, you know, properly Europeanized, liberal Russian guy who lives in Berlin as a columnist. He's very good. He's worth reading all the time, I think. and he was, you know, for the whole time, like so many Russian liberals were saying, absolutely not. This can't happen. He's yeah. not, he's, 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 it's, it's madness. It's not going to happen. And then he started tweeting as after the speech on Monday where Putin, like, you know, revealed his true face in a lot of ways. He's like, my God, this is crazy. And he said some line about imagination. And I said something along the lines of, look, uh, when Milosevic was was planning to, to actually go into Kosovo, people are saying, there's, what is he going to do? Like expel everyone? And it's a failure of imagination that mm. makes you think that something like that is impossible. <laughs> that really is what it comes down to. And really, I'm not saying that Putin has a brilliant master plan. I, I think he had a deep misconception of what was facing him. But the realities of war may, in fact, let him conclude to a certain extent that, that as the war is going on, if I don't know, let's just let's just uh, uh, you know be really just crazy about it and say half the population leaves. You know, I think that's it's it's be massively cataclysmic. But let's say this war goes on for a while and they and they leave after a while. The logic of it is, um, yeah, I don't think. That's inconceivable to me. And would it be like his master plan, like Dr. Evil sitting back there be like, and I will expel all the U- Ukrainian population? No, but maybe he'd just sort of shrug his shoulders at it and keep at it.
1: Well, we probably don't want to go in this direction because I know there'll be a little bit of a breach. And I don't think I'm really, I really have standing to talk about this. But when I hear what you're saying about the worst case scenarios, the idea of Putin leveling entire cities, killing like mass killings of tens of thousands of Ukrainians. Um, uh, Still probably unlikely, but possible and Mm -hmm. something that we have to keep in mind. I personally, what I instinct, as as someone who's a non-expert in this region, my instinct is to think about what military options are available. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've been very vocal against even raising this as a possibility. So I don't know if we want to talk about that, but I'm just telling you if we're talking about feelings.
0: No, yeah, feelings. Let's talk about feelings. No, I mean, I think. we should Are talk we about willing?
1: Are, I mean, so let let's say there is something akin to a genocide, where it's like let us we want to basically, I don't know what the right word is for it, eliminate the Ukrainian people, end them as a people, cleanse them, cleanse, cleanse them. the land. If you will, then yeah. the idea that we would take the take the quote unquote military option off the table. First of all, you should never take military options off the table because then it em- it emboldens your opponent. So even if deep down we're not willing to actually have a full-on you know hot war with Russia, which is total, you know, obviously an understandable and prudent position, the fact that we would telegraph that ahead of time seems to me to be a major miscalculation and I I would be surprised if that would actually be explicitly stated because Usually from an American standpoint, we don't take military options off the table.
2: Well, (laughs) in this case, I mean, no, but I in this case, I mean, Uh, I guess you're talking about NATO. I mean, the U.S. Army can't go anywhere near that and neither NATO cannot do it unless provoked because then, I mean, then you're just, you have a- He's talking about the U.S. He's talking about sending U.S. troops. No, no, no. I mean, you have a straight up, up, like, that's it. Like, you've skipped from 1939 to 1942, essentially. That's what
0: he's saying. He's saying, like, if we get that far.
1: But I'm just saying that presumably there is a conceivable scenario. Like, is there no conceivable scenario of anything Russia could- Potentially, do that could trigger. I don't. I'm not saying sending U.S. troops, but I'm saying something on Air the escalatory, or something, like something that. on the escalatory ladder. Because if we're saying that there is nothing Russia can do that would actually push us to consider other options, then we're we're basically saying to Russia, do whatever you will. So we're giving them a blank check.
0: Let, let me just, you know, one thing you said about taking force off the table, uh, which I think is worth just unpacking. Again, I'm not sure how closely you were following the lead up to this, but we took force off the table very early. Um, I you know, I'm struggling with that question uh, because I was quite critical of the Biden administration for. Even nego- uh, going into negotiations with the Russians up until this, I was saying we should be actually moving nukes into Romania. We need to be actually bolstering troops in the frontline states in NATO, not sending troops to uh, to Ukraine. Leave the ambiguity there about what we might do. Just build up and refuse to negotiate and be very belligerent. I yes. have to say I have to say today, though, I'll just you know in defense of Biden, I, I had a, a, a thought today that uh, had Biden done that, he wouldn't have brought the Europeans along. Uh, the Europeans needed to see that everything was exhausted. And mm. honestly, had we behaved that way, I'm not sure this catharsis would have exactly happened in Europe as it did, because they they needed to see that all of their goodwill, and Biden is one of them in a lot of ways, you know, like they, he buys into that sort of world order stuff. They needed to see all that exhausted for that to come together. So, you know, to your point, Shadi, I just want to tease that out because it's important. I think Biden took force off the table Early, very early, but the reason I want to point that out is because I think there's a difference between um, deterring through ambiguity and uh, going up the escalatory ladder once you've been warned about nuclear weapons and a yeah. hot war is happening <laughs> because the danger is the hot war and I mean, I was just tweeting right before I came out here it's 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 democracies in particular are very bad at regulating. Uh, their passions once they're unleashed. Um, So once we get in a hot war, we discussed this last night, I think all bets are off the table. And I don't think you're any more on the escalatory ladder. Once you're in a shooting war with another nuclear power, then the passions take over. And in that case, in fact, I think a dictator is actually more likely to be able to climb down the escalatory ladder than the democracy is the other part. Um, Now, maybe that's an argument that we should climb up it because we're going to fucking bluff him. is dangerous though. It's really, really dangerous. I, think. I
1: look. I understand. Look, I understand that. But are you willing to honestly say that there is nothing Russia could conceivably do? And I'm not even just talk. I mean, who? So you're right that I think it's fine in the lead up to downplay our belligerence and to say that okay, no, we're not going to send U.S. troops. Totally understandable. I support that. But that's before knowing what Russia might do subsequently. So let's say Russia goes into Kiev and rounds up a hundred. I mean, I'm giving the most extreme example just to kind of illustrate a point, Um, because there's been talk about past massacres as precedents. What if he uh, massacres 40,000 Ukrainians over the span of one week would be presumably challenging to do. I think it's very unlikely. But I'm only saying this to say, Well, presumably there is something Russia could do in Ukraine that would arouse us to the extent where we're willing to have a conversation about what other options are available to us. Then we can decide whether they're prudent or plausible or too risky and so forth. But I, like Elizabeth, a question to you. I mean, if you saw a mass killing going on in real time and the whole world was quote unquote watching, and I mean, I I don't I don't get this. Are we are we honestly saying that there is nothing Russia can do to Ukrainians that would arouse us to this degree? This is
2: a different kind of situation than like, you know, there was a genocide, of course, in in Bosnia.
1: And we intervened. But
2: that was a different situation because like And also, I mean, the U.S. Army or, you know, NATO or whatever we're calling it. It was the U.S. Army, essentially. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, faced with um the serbian army it's just there's just no question i mean we could we could do something about that
0: and we, can cho- we- and we chose not to do it when a bunch of brown people were doing it Shadi. and i mean I, I do want to get yeah, to and i was opposed raised question to that no i know you were but i mean i'm answering your question for you can we can we sit and watch uh stand by idly as people are massacred yes we can
1: well clearly we can i mean the question is but should also we? there are
2: other i mean i think you know but then what happens, right? I mean, then the, the U.S. army is faced with the Russian army. That's a totally, you're in a totally different equation there. I mean.
0: But, but I mean, I think the, the equation, you know, I mean, if you want to do this this grotesque sort of like moral math on it, um, uh, the question is, is I forget who was saying this. I mean, that like, you know, just war theory, apparently, I don't know nothing about just war theory, but justifies violence in order to prevent, uh, uh, to prevent a certain amount of killing, but it's not justified if it leads to greater killing. Um, So if you put on the balance, you know, the kind of killing that could happen in nuclear holocaust, at least, I think this was Daniel Larison actually was tweeting this, but like that, that in fact, the argument was that, that in this case, um, uh, there would be even like a just war theory argument against it, because the risks of provoking the kind of nuclear holocaust far outweigh, you know, even quite frankly, the entire Ukrainian nation getting uh, and, right. But that, and it
2: seems to me that there must be other right. I mean, like these like the sanctions are really terrible. They're sure. cutting off supplies to the Russian army, you know, that they say that, you know, soldiers with empty stomachs are, you know, not soldiers at all. Also, there's the surrounding the you know, there's Poland, there's the Baltic states like they've all been training and sending supplies and that sort of thing. I mean, there's ways to sort of Feed feed military capability into Ukraine short of actually sending right sending American equipment or troops or whatever it, right whatever it and might that's
1: be. totally fine for the foreseeable future until a potential worst case scenario happens but I, what I take issue with is is this assumption that. So you're talking about a nuclear holocaust you've skipped four or five steps in the escalatory ladder that would lead to that
2: no but um, I think and so that's the, the th- point though but, the, but, argument, but then, the argument
0: is that the argument is that that uh you lose control of that okay now, look, well, i mean look. and so i mean again it's it, it ends up what you're comfortable with what levels of of you know uh and there's no way to tell you know it's war it's unpredictable uh but why are of-
1: why are we the ones who are going into this with one hand one hand tied or whatever it is two hands tied behind obviously the russians are very comfortable threatening all kinds of things and we're the ones who pretty much have to defer to that
0: every step of the way. People we, defer to us all the time because we have nuclear weapons for uh, the exact same reason. Right, but we also this is why have- But this if the is US
2: put military action on the table, wouldn't that somehow be even worse? I mean, that would be sort of like a Russian propaganda arm that they are really in a battle you know, against the West. Well, there's
0: that too. But I mean, Shadi's talking about basically marching to Moscow. No, no, guys, that <laughs> is not what I'm, this is, no, that You're is clearly have, not what I'm talking say, about. No, earlier you were saying we have to defeat Putin. We, we can't live with- Okay, but that's not,
1: planet. I didn't, I was not talking Okay, <laughs> defeating Putin means that we morally should- Morally defeating him. No, it means that we should encourage regime change by putting extreme pressure on him, which is already what we're doing. If you thought that I meant that we're going to, like, march in, and this is- But this, there was a controversy about this on Twitter when Ben uh, Benjamin Wittes, my colleague at Brookings, he, he it was a cryptic tweet, and we should have been probably more clear about it, but he said- Regime, regime change. And- <laughs> colon Russia. And people- it, it, This is the problem- When we like people assume things that are not actually there in the text, I said that, yes, we need to find ways to defeat Putin that does not. Necessitate military force. You're reading into that. If that's no,
2: I'm not. Well, I, the uh, the idea no. for that would be a, to instigate like a, like a palace a palace coup. coup yeah. That would be the more. Yeah, of,
1: yeah, no, I, and I, I support that. I
0: look. I mean, I I tweeted like on Saturday saying, "Good Russian patriots should do the right thing," and I think that's right because I think this is really going to be catastrophic for Russia in the in the even in the medium term, but. Uh,
2: and does anybody else really support this? Other, you know, around Putin. I mean, obviously he has to have the sort of participation of those around him. No, but in uh, terms of the kind of, you know,
0: I, I, look, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I think some people are just fine with it. Um, I'm just guessing they're they're rich. They've consolidated their their wealth, and they're they're resigned to living in their mansions and just being wealthy. No, no. I it, what what the only thing I want to just push back, Shadi, is that that the very passion that impels you to go to war is the same, oh, is the same passion is the same passion that would lead you to escalate it past a certain level um, and that's my argument that's the that's the core of my argument okay why are, and, why are, and, okay and, and and that's it I mean feel free to take uh, objection with it but that that's the core of the war is is what's that line in in, uh, in uh, oh God uh, in in the loop war is unforeseeable. And it's like a plane flying into a mountain. No, in any case, it's it's uh, wars is, is really unpredictable, and these things sort of happen. Okay, but I think I, democracies mm. are more volatile.
1: I don't think that's first of all. I don't think that's true. I mean, do Americans want a nuclear holocaust if we if we like? Why is there an assumption that? Americans would just jump through all these steps and we would have a nuclear confrontation. I just feel like there's a lot of-
2: Well, it seems like Putin might jump through, jump all those steps. Well, that's a
1: different argument. I think what Demir is arguing is that Americans, because we are a democracy, we would lose control and then we wouldn't be able to kind of stop at some point in the escalatory ladder. I don't think there's any evidence for that. Do Americans want a nuclear holocaust? Are Americans actually willing to threaten their entire existence? as Americans in America? No, I think there would be a lot of pressure to hold back. I mean, we hear those voices already now where they're saying, restraint, let's not go too far. I see these realists saying this stuff all the time. This idea that Americans are like unleashed. This
0: is not a realist argument, by you. The argument is, the argument about escalatory ladders and nuclear deterrence is not a realist argument. That's like just like an entire, you know this, you're, you're the political scientist in the room. It's the its the one, uh, it is this like, deeply studied field that was developed because we were actually facing this for decades. No,
1: I'm saying realists are the ones right now who are arguing in articles on Twitter. John, you know, to use an extreme example, who isn't necessarily representative of realists. So I don't want to like tar the whole realist camp with this. But John Mearsheimer, his interview with um, Isaac Schottener that came out today in The New Yorker. These are examples of people who think that like we've we're already we've already become too provocative and um, I mean, there there is this thought. No,
0: that that's in the run up to this. I, I grant you all that. And I was against those people. That's not, we've, Mearsheimer and all those people are doing this whole sort of NATO provoke this thing. I don't have really much patience for that. I don't either, but there is still kind
2: of a NATO border that exists, right? Exactly. I mean, we're assuming exactly. that like, even if Putin isn't going to stop in Ukraine, that he's not going to, you know, traverse the border into the, into the baltic states or are we sure about that well because then you really trigger something but if the if the united states were to lay military action on the table there would be no reason for him to stop because it's already right, right. So, it's already okay, there
1: okay but so, so I, we I, are willing we are willing to fight for something we are willing so what he, you just well, said right now
2: into the baltic states i mean
1: so you are willing to fight so you are willing to risk the escalatory ladder if Putin goes into the that's Baltic not, that's state, not
0: how, that's not how it works. I mean, do, do, how do you how do you conceive of deterrence? I mean, what, do you have a theory of deterrence? No, but time out, but, <laughs> but I want to be clear. No, no. But I, I don't think this is this is she's not making a moral judgment that she would no. support that she's like yeah, she's willing not a to fight for one she's ma- and not no, the other. She's making a, a fact.
2: A, no, no, it's setting a line whereas if you set foot into Europe, you cross the line into the NATO treaty. So you treaty, are okay. you ha- you, ha- you have to respond. Okay, Otherwise, so you, you're inviting horror okay, no, no. horror upon yourself. Okay. Like well,
1: you, you're, so you're willing to fight so you are willing to put potential nuclear confrontation on the line for the Baltic states. So there is a line.
2: I wouldn't be putting it on the line. It's already there. And they would be setting it off if they did that. And they know that right now.
0: Shadi, so like the theory of deterrence is one of tying your hands. That is to say it's like creating a doomsday device. That's actually the theory of deterrence that underlines NATO. It's not we are NATO. We are an organization of peace, freedom and liberty and we save lives. That's not what NATO is. NATO is a doomsday device that... Uh, becomes, quite frankly, less and less credible the more countries we add and like our our claim to it. Right now, the credibility of NATO is, I think, the only thing that stands between us and a much wider war. That's Agreed. literally what I think at this I, point. I would agree with that. And yeah. and that credibility is super important. And it's, it's one, yeah. it's, it's not about what Elizabeth or I have a will to do. You know, one could make a perfect argument that a lot of the countries that are led into NATO have already deterred the credibility of NATO's deterrence because it's less believable that we would go to war for some shitty Baltic country or whatever. Baltic countries are lovely. I love it up there. They are they're not really shitty. nice. It's really yeah, nice to great. go. Everyone yeah, yeah. should go visit. But that's an argument that's been made. My argument ever since this crisis started is NATO's the line. It's the only line, it's the only thing yeah. that keeps us from this. And it's because it ties our hands. It's not that I want to yeah. go, I don't want to yeah. do. Like that choice is taken away. Now, truth be told, of course, yeah. the NATO decision, article five is not an automatic thing. It goes to the the executive council, or the NIC or whatever it's called, and it's still voted by members. But the credibility yeah. lies on the idea that it's a near automatic thing, that it's not right. discretionary. And if
2: they were to cross into the Baltic states and we didn't do anything, then our credibility is entirely shot. That's it. They have free range to do and what that's, they want.
0: And that's the pressure on NATO why Article 5 is so powerful. Because if you don't hold uh, uphold it once it happens, the whole
2: thing that's collapses. It. Yeah.
0: And so, you know, that's a theory of deterrence. It's not about, you know, we fight for the right things. It's not like we're the Western alliance of values, liberty, democracy, and freedom, and like anti-genocide. So
2: there is some of that, too.
0: Yeah, it, it got built <laughs> in over time. Exactly.
2: And that's how the Baltic states see themselves. Okay, also. but
1: what if it's not a full invasion of the Baltic states? What if there's border attrition? What if there is shooting that happens? I mean, you can imagine— scenarios that aren't clear cut, where there is some debate about triggering article five. I'm just saying that we, I mean, you're assuming a very clear line where it may not be as clear as, uh, but yeah, that's like- But
0: look, I mean, whether, whether you know, someone, uh, Michael Cicere, uh, a Twitter friend, uh, was, was tweeting uh, this and I was going at it with him about that very point about, you know, border incursions, these sort of like gray zone sort of things. Um, I wouldn't trigger a nuclear war if they started doing that, but I would tell you in non-war time, that was a much more credible and important threat because no. these were all liberal societies in peacetime that they would be like, oh, is this peaceful protest or is it something else? Mm. Those liberties are now gone. I'm almost certain Mm -hmm. of it, even though they haven't passed laws in in the Baltics at this point to that fact. There's already talk. I saw that, you know, Czech Republic might be like clamping down on on speech. We're in a different world on Mm -hmm. Europe. And this is, again, this like the world of Mm -hmm. yesterday. It's no longer it's wartime over there. So I don't think this would be tolerated and be like, oh, it's peaceful protests or is it actually subversion? They would lock them the fuck up. Almost immediately, probably without due process at this point, because of the emergency and also that's going the on.
2: other thing that you know everyone was sort of preparing for this question, right? Like what constitutes a trigger, what constitutes a war, you know, the sort of hybrid, like blah, blah, blah. Yeah. and in the end, Russia just freaking invaded Ukraine. So that's it right. seems like, you know And at
0: this point and at this point, I think basically if it was if it was something like peaceful protests that turned into riots, I think it would be put down with maximum violence. Wouldn't go nuclear in that case. If they rolled tanks over it those tanks would be absolutely decimated. But the goal would, again, be not to follow them across the border, but they'd be decimated within the territory yeah. of NATO. Um, and then, you know, I mean, if they started, re- like, actually threatening a serious invasion, then we're on the line, and then, like, nuclear war is much more likely. You and, know? Of course I there, mean, and, and
2: of course, there are already U.S. troops there. Yeah. Like, they're on yeah. the Estonian-Russian border. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know. Okay, so, well, well,
1: well, yeah. well, maybe... Okay, so we got a little bit sidetracked with this because I think it was important and I think we 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 need to get a clear sense of the stakes and where certain red lines are. So I think it was helpful and but you wanted to talk about yeah, brown people. I, I want to talk. And I just want to make sure we have time.
0: We got time. That concludes the free portion of this week's podcast dear listeners. In part two of our conversation, available for subscribers only, we talk about whether Americans and the West more broadly have treated this crisis differently based on race. We hope that you'll consider joining us and supporting our work. Thanks for listening.